Hello, Professor Lara Southgate. Um, thank you for joining the Foreign Policy Talks podcast today. Um, Hi, Nato. Thanks for having me. Great. Uh, Professor, I'm grateful of having you in this episode. Um, I read and love your article at The Diplomat with the same title like this episode, and hopefully we will have an interesting discussion, especially on the geopolitical dynamics influenced by what happened after the U.S. election, in which has been affecting the Southeast Asian region. Uh, Professor, I would like to start by asking this. Has either China or the United States won in the competition of gaining more influence in ASEAN? Or you think ASEAN has maintained its neutrality perfectly? Um, well, thanks, Noto, and I think it's a really good question. Um, I would say that really since the end of the Cold War until fairly recently, ASEAN had done a reasonably good job of balancing the competing demands and interests of both the United States and China. Uh, the Southeast Asian region has shown a lot of growth and development during this period, so over the last, say, you know, 25 to 30 years. And ASEAN has really grown to become what is now recognised as quite an influential economic and political actor. And really, as a result of this, we've witnessed enhanced ties between both the US and ASEAN and also China and ASEAN. So under the presidency of Barack Obama, the United States signed for example, ASEAN's Treaty of Amity and Cooperation, which is its um, founding um, principle uh, that was first put together in 1976, and also designated the first US ambassador to ASEAN. So we saw this kind of like increased um, relationship between the US and ASEAN during that time period. Within a similar time period, we also saw increased relations between ASEAN and China. So for example, um, ASEAN and China agreed a free trade area, plus a number of ASEAN states are also members of the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank and the Belt and Road Initiative. So we saw this kind of um, increased relations between both the US and China. Mm -hmm. However, I would argue that this does not necessarily mean that ASEAN has achieved a perfect neutrality in the relationship. And this is particularly noticeable in the security realm. Um, in particular, ASEAN, I think, has struggled to balance the competing demands of the US and China. Um, and this has impacted on ASEAN neutrality as a result. And we particularly see that in areas of high security conflict. So, for example, in the South China Sea area. Um, I'd also argue that China has made some gains in the kind of competition for ASEAN influence under the presidency of Donald Trump. If we think about the time period since 2016, we've noticed that the United States has really failed to prioritize Southeast Asia. And we've seen this manifest in a form of, for example, missed visits to the region for the different APEC and ASEAN summits, withdrawal of the TPP and so on. And this has really left an opening for China. And I think that China has taken full advantage of this and has gained influence as a result. And we've seen a recent signing of the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, um, which is now Asia Pacific's largest trading bloc as an example of this. Mm -hmm. uh, Professor, I'm curious to know what you think of the extremely close uh, political proximity between Cambodia and China. Has it disrupted the ASEAN neutrality? It's a good question. And I think, yes, it has. And we've seen the uh, close relationship between Cambodia and China impacting on ASEAN unity for a number of years now. Not even just uh, Cambodia, for example, also Laos and China as well. Mm -hmm. um, and this dates back for, uh, you know, really the last 10 years where we have seen Cambodia prioritizing the relationship with China over necessarily its relationship within ASEAN. 
Mm -hmm. Thanks. Uh, can you share to the listeners on the impact of growing uncertainties resulting from the first changing geopolitical dynamics, the changing leadership in the U.S., and also the inflaming U.S.-China tension to ASEAN stability? So what do you think of ASEAN stability at the moment? Uh, yeah, so growing uncertainties and an increase in the U.S.-China tensions impact on both uh, ASEAN autonomy and also ASEAN unity, and in doing so undermines ASEAN stability at the same time. So if we think about, for example, um, with respect to ASEAN autonomy, there's been this long-held desire by ASEAN to limit the amount of external interference in Southeast Asia, uh, particularly with respect to this sort of great power security competition that we saw occur during the Cold War. Um, however, regional autonomy is very difficult to achieve, even during periods of relative peace and stability. Uh, and Southeast Asia is an area of geopolitical interest to these countries, largely due to its strategic location, but also its growing economic importance as well. And as we see tensions between the US and China rise, we can expect to, if anything, see more attempts by these two states to continue to involve themselves in the region and to attract regional allies. And then in doing so, that then impacts on ASEAN unity, which is a point that we've just touched on with regards to the um, China and Cambodia relationship. Uh, for ASEAN to be an effective regional actor, it really needs to be able to act with some degree of coherence. And this is made quite difficult when external powers target ASEAN member states in an attempt to influence things that happen in the region. Uh, and so we saw this in 2012, where the ASEAN foreign ministers weren't able to issue a joint statement for the first time since its establishment, because they couldn't agree on the South China Sea dispute issue. And that was largely in part due to the role that Cambodia played in blocking the dispute at that time, in part due to its close relations with China. So really, as tensions in the region increase, these kind of examples are likely to increase as well. And we've already seen the South China Sea becoming increasingly militarized in recent years, which is undermining ASEAN stability in the process. Mm, very interesting. Uh, you were writing in your article, Professor, that ASEAN states, especially demonstrated by Vietnam, has looked other powers like India and Japan for help deterring China. But we all see China is not resisting its efforts and in increasing their political power in the region. So has this strategy worked well? Uh, it's a really good question. I think it would be unrealistic to expect China to be deterred by increasing cooperation between uh, regional ASEAN states such as Vietnam and external powers. Mm -hmm. uh, whilst I expect Japan, India and Australia having this increasing role in the region is certainly something that is viewed with suspicion from China. And I think it's also viewed as an unwelcome external interference in the region. I think it's fair to say that China is probably currently too powerful, both economically and also militarily. Uh, to consider, to reconsider or scale back its geopolitical strategy in Southeast Asia. And as a small state that struggled to push back against Chinese assertiveness, yeah. Vietnam has looked for maritime support to uphold its sovereignty claims to these disputed islands in the South China Sea. And we see this support from countries such as Japan and India in the form of, for example, maritime capacity building, joint naval patrols, and money for maritime infrastructure funding. However, China, I think, has been so effective in its expansion and militarization of these disputed islands that it's really unlikely that Vietnam's efforts will have shifted the balance of power in Vietnam's favor, particularly because China has really had a quite big head start on Vietnam in that it has been developing its kind of um, militarization of the region for the past decade. But that being said, I think Vietnam's strategy is still quite a beneficial one 
because I think it sends, first of all, a signal to China that Vietnam isn't going to capitulate, it's not going to back down. Uh, and I think it's also important to point out that these efforts by these external powers and this kind of growing cooperation with these external powers um, is generally quite a recent thing and it has the potential to become more effective over time. So for example, as security cooperation with external powers increases, more pressure will be put on China as a result. And I think one good example of that is the quadrilateral security dialogue, uh, which is generally just referred to as the Quad, uh, which is an informal strategic forum based in the Asia Pacific that has the US, India, Japan and Australia as members. Um, it was first established over 10 years ago, but it's been revived in the past couple of years. We've seen this increasing um, security dialogue developing among these regional powers. And whilst ASEAN isn't a member, this development security relationship clearly benefits some of these ASEAN states, such as Vietnam, which want to see a more engaged response to counter China. So whilst Vietnam's strategy may not have had a noticeable, noticeable impact to date, um, it can't be completely ruled out in the future. Mm -hmm. Interesting. In your piece, Professor, you were also discussing a lot on ASEAN's aspiration for a zone of peace, uh, freedom and neutrality. Is it correct to say that the ASEAN outlook on Indo-Pacific is a reaffirmation of this sovereign idea? Yes, I think I would agree that ASEAN has uh, been attempted to kind of reaffirm and pursue this concept in the contemporary context. Um, although the concept has usually been applied more locally just to the Southeast Asian region, mm -hmm. uh, this idea of a zone for peace, freedom and neutrality, or usually referred to as a ZOPFAN, it began during the Cold War uh, with the aim of limiting external power engagement and interference in Southeast Asia. But the nature of the Cold War conflict meant that this notion of a ZOPFAN uh, was very difficult to achieve at that time. However, the concept has persisted and we do see it utilised um, within ASEAN's different joint declarations, for example, and joint statements as well. Uh, the ultimate aim obviously remains the same now in the post-Cold War period which is that ASEAN hopes that external powers will disengage from Southeast Asia and that the ASEAN states will uphold this aim rather than encouraging states to play a security role in the region. And it was only recently on ASEAN's 53rd anniversary, which was in August um, of this year, the ASEAN foreign ministers released this statement where they called for a reduction in tensions in Southeast Asia and reaffirmed uh, the association's commitment to peace, security, neutrality, and stability. But as I discussed in my recent article, uh, reaffirming the concept doesn't necessarily equate to a successful implementation of the, con of, of the concept. Mm. And the likelihood of external powers, such as the US and China, agreeing to disengage from Southeast Asia in light of its geopolitical significance is, I think, relatively low. And on top of that, not all states within ASEAN agree that this should be an approach either. So um, as we've just discussed, Vietnam, for example, appears much more focused on involving external powers in the region rather than completely excluding them. And the problem for ASEAN is that it's a collection of smaller states and it doesn't have the capabilities to exclude the likes of US and China by itself. Um, so ASEAN's been unsuccessful, really, at resolving some of the conflicts that have occurred in the region, such as the South China Sea dispute. And this has also allowed for a continued role for external powers. So I'd say the quest for neutrality has been undermined in some respects, but it doesn't detract from the fact that ASEAN is still very concerned with these heightened tensions and it would like to see a reduction in security competition as a result. Uh, awesome. 
Oh, Professor, if I may, uh, how do you assess Indonesia's relationship to U.S. and China? Do you think we are sailing, uh, we are perfectly sailing between two reefs or we are too close to China? How do you assess this situation? Indonesia is an interesting case study because, um, especially during the Cold War, Indonesia was one of the key um, drivers of the neutrality concept. Um, and Indonesia has always been quite keen to remain more non-aligned when it comes to the US and China. And also in the past, Indonesia has not had a very good relationship with China. It's viewed China with some mistrust due to certain actions that China took in the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, so for quite a long time, Indonesia, the Indonesia and China relationship was not very good. And I would probably say that um, the US-Indonesia relationship was slightly stronger but at the same time, Indonesia was trying to maintain this kind of neutrality between the two powers. Um, more contemporary, I would say that this is probably still the main aim for Indonesia, which is to um, try to find a balance between the United States and China. I would say perhaps due to the Donald Trump administration's approach towards Southeast Asia as a whole, which has been generally one of neglect, I think you could say, um, that we might have seen Indonesia, you know, move slightly closer to China as a result. But I would still say that I think Indonesia is one of the more neutral states in Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So you're, you're talking about Donald Trump. So let me ask you my last question, Professor. Uh, what will be Joe Biden's re-engagement strategy to Southeast Asia? Will it be using less offensive foreign policy strategy in countering China's influence? Or you think we would likely... Uh, see that uh, they will rely on more military-based strategies along with American traditional allies? Well, Joe Biden's foreign policy strategy is quite difficult to pin down. It's been clouded in some mystery. And that's in part because when we uh, followed the U.S. election campaign, it was primarily fought on a number of U.S. domestic issues, such as the economy, for example, and obviously also the COVID-19 pandemic. So we didn't see as much... Um, discussion around foreign policy that we might usually see during a um, election campaign. But whilst we haven't had that kind of clear indication of what the strategy might be from 2020 onwards, there are some indications and there are some interviews that Biden has made uh, where he's talked about his potential strategy for foreign policy. So we can draw on some of those points. Uh, and in an interview he made in March 2020, he stated that the US needs to get tough with China and that it needs to regain its place at the top of the table. So it needs to you know, regain its, its position as predominant power in the system. Uh, what this kind of tough approach actually looks like isn't particularly clear, uh, but it is expected that under Biden, the US, first of all, might try to dial down some of the inflammatory language that Trump has used when talking about China in recent years. Uh, and there may even be some attempts to um, kind of uh, de-escalate the tensions in the relationship between the United States and China. Having said that, Biden has been quite clear that the United States will be looking to challenge China economically and also technologically through new trade agreements and through cooperation with traditional allies. Uh, he has stated that the use of force should be a last resort, so the US may seek to minimize any obvious or blatant military strategies in the South China Sea. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, but having said that, I think we are likely to see an engage, a continued engagement through the use of, for example, um, US freedom and navigation patrols, joint military exercises, um, which can put pressure on China without necessarily escalating the conflict through a military buildup.
Um, Biden's also been very clear that he'll seek to challenge China by building a united front of the US allies uh, to confront China. So I would therefore expect Biden's re-engagement strategy um, with Southeast Asia to be informed with a view to generating allies and seeking to reassure the region of US commitment moving forwards. Uh, and this will obviously have some benefits for the region, particularly if this renewed commitment is underpinned by economic incentives, for example, increased trade. Um, however, for those states hoping to avoid being drawn into this anti-China strategy, this new engagement strategy might be rather unnerving. Uh, but for those countries that are looking for greater US commitments, such as Vietnam, it will be welcomed. Uh, so undoubtedly, a Biden presidency, um, under a Biden presidency, ASEAN will continue to be pulled in these kind of opposing directions, I think, moving forward. Mm -hmm. Seeing, uh, Professor, sorry, uh, a short question. Um, seeing how um, persuasive China to ASEAN in terms of helping them uh, fight against the pandemic, especially the vaccine cooperation, do you think the anti-China uh, strategy uh, will be uh, you know, I mean, uh, do you think ASEAN countries will buy this anti-China strategy by the US? Uh, no, not particularly. And I think the fact that this is coming off the back of four years where really the United States has been not particularly engaged at all in Southeast Asia, um, I think that the states of ASEAN will be quite wary of um, any kind of major US re-engagement strategy, especially because the, the fluctuating nature of the domestic politics in the United States. Um, so I don't think any ASEAN state will be particularly willing to um, work really closely with the United States in an anti-China strategy for then a new, in four years time, a new um, administration to come into place, which might then pursue another disengagement strategy and leaving these countries um, in a situation where they have in a poorer relationship with China as a result, because obviously China is uh, the major power in the region. China is something that is um, in their reality. It's a neighboring state. And so it's important for them to maintain some form of good relationship, relationship with China. Great. Thank you so much, Professor Lauer. Um, it was a great talk. It was a great conversation. Uh, hopefully this is beneficial for many people out there. And then uh, looking forward to talk to you again next time. Thank you very much, Nato. It's really it's a pleasure to speak to you about the topics. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you.